Good morning. It's a joy to be with you uh, again this morning. Um, I do want to remind you that uh, part of the reason why I'm standing before you is because right now, uh, Mitch, as well as some other folks, are in our favorite country uh, doing ministry in a, in a very difficult place. So before we get started, let's just uh, take a moment to, to pray for them right now. Father, uh, thank you so much that your name uh, will be worshipped among all peoples and all nations, and that uh, no matter what obstacles or challenges we may uh, see from our human perspective, that you are working uh, to be glorified. And so we just uh, pray that you would be with uh, with Mitch and with the team uh, as they're over in, in uh, our country, Father, and you know where that is. And uh, we just pray, Father, that you would just... Uh, create divine appointments, that they would be able to share freely the gospel, that they would be able to bless and minister those they come in contact with, and that the work there would continue to grow and increase uh, to the praise of your glory. Uh, Please, Father, just go before them and behind them, guard their steps, protect and shield them. Uh, And we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, We've been talking for the last couple of weeks here uh, about what it looks like to have leadership in the church and and thinking through uh, different texts related to being an elder. And so one of the questions that might uh, naturally occur as we just have been thinking through this is how do I know whether or not I'm called to ministry? Um, And that's a very natural question. I know particularly at a younger stage in my life when I was in in college, I spent a lot of time thinking through that question. You know, what does the Lord have for me? What's the Lord's will? You know, am I called to something in particular? And trying to figure out uh, how to plug in to the life uh, of the church uh, through that question. And and so that's a very natural question. Um, And in some ways, it's a very easy question to answer. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to kind of jump straight to the the punchline of the sermon here on the very front end, and then we'll go and look at a text and kind of see where we get to that conclusion in a minute. Um, but I want to remind us of two things. It's a very uh, natural question to ask whether or not we're called into ministry, um, but there's some misconceptions that are part of asking that question. Um, the first misconception is thinking of calling in terms of some sort of profession or activity. Uh, when we look at Scripture and we look at historically how that term has been used, calling is primarily a relational concept. Uh, calling means that, that Christ has called us from death into life. He's taken a cold heart that was dead to the gospel, that did not see uh, the glory of Christ, and he has made it alive. And so that's what it means to be called. We're called into a relationship. That should be what marks our identity. And I confess, I wrestle with this. Uh, it's very easy for me to get wrapped up in my work as my identity. Um, I think that that's even something that we see when we talk with one another because one of the first questions we ask folks is, what do you do, right? And so we want to, to kind of label people or think that what we do with our life is somehow related to our identity, but that's not what we find in the text. What we find is that we are primarily called into relationship with Jesus. And the second uh, point here is that if we are a Christian, then you are called into ministry, right? Um, we, this is one of the great blessings and benefits that the Reformation helped us to see, that, that there is no divide between the sacred world and the secular world. There's not a realm of super spiritual elite uh, priestly leaders and then everybody else in sort of a second class Christian status, that all of us are in ministry together and that every task, every uh, thing that we do, whether uh, as part of our life in the church or as part of 
uh, our professional life is equally an opportunity for grace and for ministry, that there's as much ministry potential in being uh, a doctor or a mechanic or an accountant as there is in, in what I'm doing right now. And so, so I'm kind of getting, like I said, to the punchline at the very beginning, we are all called uh, to ministry. We're all called to take what the Lord has given us and to use it in a way that edifies and blesses the body. Uh, and that advances the gospel to the nations. And so a text that uh, was really meaningful to me uh, when I was wrestling through this question and trying to think through this all properly uh, is in Matthew chapter 25. And so we're going to look at this and see what we might learn about um, how our ministry together, how we're called to to invest the things we've been given uh, together and and, and how that uh, plays out. And so this is Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 14 uh, through 30. This is the parable uh, of the talents. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll go back and make some observations uh, from the text. So Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 14, uh, talking about uh, the, the, the second coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug it in the ground and hid his master's uh, money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we look at this parable, uh, this is actually a parable that's in a series of parables that comes as Christ is preaching uh, about the end of the age. He's talking about, uh, this is part of a passage, it's called the Olivet Discourse, where uh, Christ is talking about uh, sort of the end of time and the second coming and, and how we're supposed to live in light of that. So there's a series of parables he tells, and all of these parables basically have as their theme that we should be ready, that we should be watchful, and that we should be actively engaged in his business until he returns. And, and they kind of look at it from different angles, uh, but all these parables basically have that as their central uh, central theme, and it's this idea that that for those of us who have been called into relationship with Jesus Christ, 
that there is some expectation, there is some responsibility of how we are to live as we await for his return. So let's look at this parable in particular and see what we can learn from this text and how that plays off into the life of ministry in the church. Um, The first thing that we see is that everyone is given something of great value. You know, the master calls his servants together and he gives each of them talents uh, according to their abilities. And the reality is that God has very, very richly blessed us with so many things. Right? Um, when we look at these talents, uh, trying to just get kind of a sense of the value here, um, it's estimated, it's difficult to exactly say what the cash value of a talent is in today's money, but it's estimated that a talent would have represented about 6,000 denarii, which was a, a working man's day's wages. So about 6,000 days worth of labor, that would approach something like 20 years worth of, uh, of labor. And so maybe in today's money, that might be something like half a million dollars for a single talent. So, so we're talking about that the master gave something of great value to, to his servants. Then he really gave them something of great value. And, and the reality is, is that, that we all are recipients of blessings from the Lord based on the gospel. Right. Um, even those who have not yet accepted the gospel actually receive blessing from the Lord on the basis of the gospel. It talks about how that in God's uh, grace that he causes his rain to shine on the unjust as well as on the just. So the fact that we wake up today and we have life and we have health and we've the opportunity to come and, and worship him together, that we have his word, that we have the opportunity to repent and believe the gospel, in addition to all of our material resources, all of our natural abilities, all of those things are gifts that are given to us from the master. They're not things that we deserve in ourselves, right? This is very countercultural because we live in a culture that very much focuses on rights and and entitlements and thinks that by virtue of being alive, that somehow life or society or others owe us certain things. And when we look at the text, we see that we are slaves. We are servants of the master, and everything that we have is given to us as a gift from above. And when we look at those gifts, too, I think that it's important to understand that that these different things, there's not supposed to be one thing that it represents. Jesus is using talents as a symbol for the gifts that he gives uh, to the world. Because it can represent so many different things. It can represent our spiritual uh, gifting of those of us who are in Christ, whether that would be a gift of, of teaching or of ministry and, and hospitality or whether it's uh, the spirit of discernment, whatever spiritual gifts that would encompass, um, you know, physical abilities like intelligence or uh, you know, aptitudes with athletics or art or the ability to just fix things, which I have not been gifted with. I'm useless when it comes to those projects around the house, right? So those natural abilities, our possessions, um, even the gospel itself, all of those things are in view. There's no need to try to say that these talents only represent one of those things. All of these things have been given to us from the Father, and all of them are our gifts. And so another observation to pull out of that is that they are gifts. They are not things that we earn, right? It's not as though um, we have to somehow put in a certain amount of of service or good behavior, and then the Lord responds by giving us these things, right? Um, They are gifts that are given based off the gospel, based off the sacrifice uh, of Christ. There's also no judgment that's attached uh, based on how much someone is given. So you see in this parable, there's one servant who's given five talents, another's given two talents, another's given one talent. And so whatever those talents represent, there's no judgment attached that the one who had five was better or that the one who had one was less than. The focus in the text is not uh, 
comparing ourselves to one another and measuring ourselves and feeling perhaps jealous or envious. The, the focus is, what are you doing with what you've been given, whatever that is? And the reality is, is that each of these gifts, whatever God has given you, each is vitally important for the life and the ministry of the church. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different ways we can plug in. And, and I'm going to give a few examples here, but I don't mean this in any way to be exhaustive. Uh, in terms of the ways that we plug into the church. But, you know, there are folks who show up and, and make coffee on Sunday morning, and what they do is as important as what I'm doing right now. Um, I don't know how many times on Saturday night, for whatever reason, I just did not sleep well. And I come into church on Sunday, and my spirit is willing to to want to worship the Lord, but the flesh is weak. And if it wasn't for those who got up and made coffee, you know, I'm, I'm just spending the whole service trying to stay awake, right? Um, Earlier this year, we were doing some uh, construction, or the, the school's really still doing some construction, and so we had our, our, our kids with us uh, in the service, which is a great blessing. I love my daughter so much. She's two years old. She's really cute. Um, but I have to admit that those four weeks when uh, I had her in the service, I didn't really have an opportunity to worship quite in the same way. I spent a lot of my time you know, with my wife kind of trying to keep her quiet and, and trying to take care of her. And so the folks who every week, you know, volunteer to serve in radical kids, to, to watch our children, and not just babysit them, but to bless them and, and to equip them with truth from the gospel, that is vital to the ministry of the church. You know, the folks who set up chairs, whatever the role is, everything is vital, everything is important, and no one's job is any less uh, valuable or any more important than anyone else's job, right? And so everyone is given something of great value, and I need what you have brought to the table today just as much as you need what I have brought to the table. Whatever the Lord has gifted you with is, is as important as what he's gifted me with. And we all are called to invest that in, in the life of the church and in the life of ministry. So we see that first. That we see that the master shows up and he gives all of his servants varying amounts of talents, each of which is of tremendous value. The next thing we notice is that the master goes on a journey, and it's actually a fairly long journey. It actually says in the text that, that he was uh, away for a long time before he returned. And, of course, you know, this, this passage, the master is representing Christ, and this journey represents the space between uh, his first advent and his second advent, right? So we're still waiting for the second coming of Christ. It's been uh, a little over 2,000 years now uh, since the first advent of Jesus, and, and he hasn't come back yet. And, and we have to be careful that we don't, in, the, in that time period, uh, grow weary or complacent. You know, it talks about in First uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter uh, 3, that at the end of the age there's going to be scoffers who come and say, where is the promise of his coming? For everything is the same as it has been since the beginning. And it goes on to say that, that when people say that, that they deliberately forget that God created the world by his word and that he brought it under judgment in the flood and he's reserving it for judgment at the end of the age. So 2,000 years may seem like a long time from a human perspective, but that does not in any sense diminish the urgency of the task that's before us. It does not in any means mean that we can just, you know, kick back and relax and become complacent and just say, well, you know, Maybe it'll be another 2,000 years, so I don't really have to engage in the life of the church right now, right? The task is still urgently uh, before us, and, and we were told to be prepared for a long wait and to be faithful uh, in the midst of that. And so we see uh, that during this time of waiting that there's two good servants and then there's, the, then there's the bad servant. And so both of the two servants, it says in the text, that they immediately went and began to trade uh, with their talents in order to, to increase the wealth of their master. 
Um, when we look at the, the kind of work that these servants were doing, I think it's important to note a couple of things. Because we live in a uh, 21st century capitalist economy, and so, at least for me, you know, when I think about investment, I naturally think about something like the stock market, you know, and, and so going to a broker and saying, here's some money. Um, that's not what these guys would have been doing with the money that they were entrusted. And, and I think there's something significant spiritually about this, right? Um, what we see, uh, for, there's one reason, there's a really good reason why we know this. Uh, first of all, that in the Old Testament, there's actually a law against lending out money at interest. Um, now, that's not necessarily something that the people always followed, and it's not really my mission today to go off and talk about uh, the usury laws in the Old Testament and all that. That's, just, that's a whole other can of worms. But, um, but, you know, given that Jesus is telling this parable to good Jews, and given that these good servants represent those who are faithful, they would not have merely been loaning that money out and just sitting back and doing nothing, right? They would have been actively uh, managing a business, actively you know, spending that, that money on resources and growing a business and managing it and engaging in trade and doing all the work that we would think of as like a small business owner. And I think the spiritual significance that comes out of that is that there is work to be done uh, in God's kingdom. Um, in no way does this diminish the sovereignty of Christ that at the end of, of, of it all, he's really the one that accomplishes uh, the work of having his name glorified among the nations. But even though Christ has ordained the, the end, which is his worship amongst all peoples, he also ordains the means, and the means is that we have to, to go about doing work, you know, that we have to roll up our sleeves and we have to be prepared to get dirty and sweaty in doing the work of the gospel. We can't sit back. Um, you know, there's no room uh, in Christianity for spectators. We can't just, you know, stay comfortably in, in our seats and say, well, the ministry is going to get accomplished uh, just because. You know, God has ordained that each of us have a task to play. And so these good servants were servants who were willing to work hard. They were willing to sweat. They were willing to roll up their sleeves in the work of, of the master, expanding his, his influence, expanding his wealth, expanding his kingdom. Okay? The next thing that we see is that as a result of that, these good servants are given two rewards. When the master comes back and he's settling accounts and he's seeing what these guys have been up to, um, I'm going to pick up here in verse uh, 21, um, talking to the, to the slave who had the five talents. He said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So we see two rewards that the good servants have for their faithful obedience. The first reward is increased responsibility. The text says that, they were faithful with a few things, and so part of their reward is that they're now to be faithful uh, over many things, right? And this, this is a very countercultural concept for us because we live in a culture that has a very skewed view of work and responsibility. You know, many people in our culture think that the points or the reward for responsibility is actually less responsibility, getting out of it. Um, you know, how many times have uh, perhaps we've been tempted or know folks that would say, well, you know, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would just quit my job and, you know, just kick back and do nothing. Um, that, that's not actually an accurate view of what it is to be a human person made in God's image or, or to understand our responsibility before the Lord. Um, the point of life is not to somehow try to, to, to achieve a certain standard of wealth so that we can kick back and do nothing. And that's how we often approach work. We, we work in order to rest. When we look at Scripture, it's the other way around, that we rest in order to be enabled to go back to work, 
right, that God has called us to do some things. And I'm not, I'm not trying to knock rest. I'm not trying to say that that's bad. You know, God does call us into a Sabbath rest. But that the point of our rest is to strengthen our hands for the task. It's not something that's supposed to be uh, the ultimate reward in, in the here and now. And so we see that the, 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 these slaves are given more responsibility as a reward for their faithfulness, right? That they don't have less work. Now the, the master has given them more opportunities to give them more work. I think it's also important to understand that there's another view in our culture that thinks that somehow that talent can substitute for discipline and responsibility. And we see this uh, so often portrayed in movies and so forth. Um, I'm a really big fan of sci-fi. I'm not trying to hate on this movie at all because I watch lots of sci-fi movies, uh, much to my wife's uh, displeasure. She's had a huge education in sci-fi. I've, I've had a huge education in chick flick, so you know we're learning. But, uh, but anyway, so the recent Star Trek movies that have come out uh, that J.J. Abrams did, um, I think is a perfect example of this flawed view of responsibility that we sometimes uh, hold to. Um, in both of these movies, the main character, Captain Kirk, uh, is basically very irresponsible. Um, he does things which really merit him being disciplined, uh, possibly even being kicked out of Starfleet, uh, certainly not being put in command. And in both movies, a crisis erupts, and because this guy is some sort of sheer you know, genius or whatever, he's thrust into this command position and he saves the day. And so rather than really suffering uh, punishment or discipline for his irresponsibility, he's promoted and rewarded. And the message that gets communicated is that somehow we can go through life without discipline, without being aware of our responsibilities. And when the crisis comes, our sheer natural talent will carry the day. That's simply not true. That is simply not what the text uh, tells us. You know, to take that and kind of apply it from a Christian perspective, if we're not disciplined to be faithful, to, to get in the word, and to pray, and to fast, and to gather together, and to be encouraging one another, if we're not engaging in all those various spiritual disciplines, when the crisis shows up in our life, whatever crisis that looks like, we're not going to be prepared to necessarily be successful in the midst of it. We can't just coast by and then think that at the last moment we'll have the, the resources that we need. And I'm not trying to in any way mitigate that the gospel does provide us uh, with so many rich blessings, and I'm not trying to suggest that we on our own strength or our own efforts uh, make ourselves holy. But God has given us uh, means. He's given us disciplines that we're to invest in, and it's through those uh, disciplines that Christ gives us the grace to be prepared to handle the various challenges and trials that come our way. And so when we look at um, these good servants, that's what they were very much a part of. They were very disciplined to use the things the master had given them well. They weren't sitting back and just uh, kind of taking it easy and then just trusting that when something popped up that they would be ready to handle it. And so that's another immature view of, uh, of responsibility that we have to counteract from our culture's perspective. We have to understand that that responsibility takes work, that, that being um, effective in, in gospel ministry takes work. Not that we earn our salvation, not that we you know, you know, diminish the role of the Spirit in us, but that that is the means that it gets done through. And I have found over time that responsibility is absolutely key to my spiritual growth. You know, it's interesting because, and, and I don't know if other people wrestle with this, but I have kind of a love-hate relationship with responsibility because when you're in a really high responsibility situation, I mean, it, there's, there's some weight there. There's some pressure there. And there's times where you might, you know, just sit around and you say, oh, I just can't wait till, you know, X point in time in the future when, when I can have less responsibility, you know, and we just feel like we're burdened. 
But at the same time, when I look at my own life and I find times when I've been in areas of low responsibility, and, I'll, and I'm just going to use this as an example because as a teacher, you know, I teach professionally for a living. So I have the opportunity to have summer breaks just like uh, students do. And I found that a lot of times those summers are not very productive for me, that I get more done, that I grow closer to the Lord spiritually when I have that responsibility. And when I have an area of low responsibility, I just get spiritually flabby, just kind of kick back and don't really do a whole lot and sort of waste my life a little bit. And so we have to understand that part of being able to embrace a gospel view of all of this means embracing responsibility, not running from it, and that it's through embracing that responsibility that God is able to to grow us and to use us to be beneficial for the kingdom. So the first reward that these good slaves get is they get more responsibility. Now, for some of us, if that's all you heard, that might seem kind of discouraging, right, that, that you work hard and then your reward is you get more work, right? It might be hard to, to necessarily get really excited about that if that was the only reward that was mentioned here in the text. But thankfully, that is not the case. There is a second reward that the good slaves received. They were to enter into the joy of their master, right? And I think it's really important for us to meditate on this for just a moment. There is a joy that comes when we are able to serve those that we love. Now, before you start thinking that I am super spiritual, I confess that I am not like this all the time. There are plenty of times in my family where I am selfish and I don't serve my family well. So I'm still working on this myself. But I think all of us can probably think of a time where we took joy in serving people that we love, right? Uh, We're coming up on the holiday season, and so I was just thinking about this. You know, we're starting to think about... Uh, at what point do we uh, start going through all the Christmas stuff and, and starting to schedule events in December and all that. And there's a lot of work that's evolved in those holiday seasons. You know, I mean, there's a lot of work in decorating the house and going shopping and wrapping and making treats and all those other things that are associated with the holidays. But there's a joy that comes in the midst of it when I'm able to see my daughter getting all excited and happy and uh, being able to bless her with gifts on Christmas morning. like there's, Even though there's work that goes into it, there's joy that results from it because there is joy, there is enjoyment, there is pleasure in being able to do things for those that we love. And so these good servants, they loved their master, right? They loved their master. These, this wasn't just something they were doing as a job. This was something that they were doing because they had a relationship with him. Um, one of the commentaries I was looking at was suggesting that the, the, the servants here were bond servants, which are slaves who had voluntarily uh, made themselves uh, a slave to their master for life. They could have been free, and they chose instead to remain in service. And so this was, would show a close relationship and a love of their master. And when we love Christ, when we see Christ for who he is, and we see all of the splendors of the gospel, then there's going to be joy in wanting to do things for Christ. To make Christ happy is part of our happiness. And part of the joy that we receive when we get to the kingdom is seeing the joy of Christ and the things we're able to bring before him. Not that somehow, you know, he needs that or as as though he was impoverished and we're adding something to him and his wealth, but there's a joy that comes in, in serving him. And I think there's a very important gospel point here also in noting that when we're, when we're thinking about the reward these guys get, notice that they did not necessarily receive a lot of talents, right? The guy who had five talents and he earned five more, he didn't say, great, here's ten talents, go off and retire. The reward he got was increased relationship with his master. And in the same way, when we look at our relationship to Christ, our chief reward, the, the chief blessing, the chief benefit of the gospel is getting more of Christ, right? It's not using Christ to get more of something else. It's not that we, 
you know, try to somehow have this relationship with Jesus so that we might earn heaven or so that we might, you know, get more material wealth or prosperity or health or any of those other sorts of things. Christ in his goodness may give us material wealth. He may give us um, all sorts of things. But the primary goal of the gospel is Christ. He is the gift. He is the reward. And so having that relationship with him makes everything else worth it. And so everything that we do ought to be done out of joyful, a joyful heart that wants more of Jesus. And I think that's really important as we're thinking about ministry. It's not my goal today to try to guilt everyone into doing something, right? To try to make you um, feel like uh, you have to do something to earn God's favor. He's going to be upset with you. There should be joy that motivates that. I enjoy the, the times where I'm able to stand up and teach before you guys. This is something that actually I derive pleasure from. And that's what it should be like, that when we're doing service for the Lord in areas that, that he has given us as gifts, that there's joy that's attached with it. And so that's what these good servants are rewarded with. They're, they're given increased responsibility, uh, increased opportunity for ministry, and they're given more joy as they draw closer into relationship with their master. Let's look at the bad servant, though. And, uh, and this one's convicting because I often find myself struggling with some of the same attitude problems the bad servant has. Let's look at his attitude and then we'll see what the master responds to it and, and what can we learn from that. So going down to verse uh, 24, it says, The one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. What does this mean? What is the attitude of the bad servant? Well, first of all, when the, the servant is calling the master hard, he's implying that the master is unfair. He's saying the master is not acting justly towards him. And there's several ways in which perhaps the slave is, is thinking that the master is unfair. The first is that he's basically telling the master, you get things that does not rightfully, rightfully belong to you. You use other people. You want to use my labor, right? He talks about how you gather where you did not scatter seed. You want me to go out and work. You want me to go out and put uh, my effort into this, into this area, and then you're going to come and take the talent away when it's all over with, right? And so he says, that's not fair. You're taking what does not rightfully belong to you. You're, you're exploiting people for your own ends. You're unfair. Perhaps he even thought that he was in a lose-lose scenario because if he took a risk with his talents and he was successful, he feels like he won't enjoy the profit from it because it's his master's money. But if, he, if he's a failure in his investment, then his master will punish him for losing his money. So he says, it's unfair. You put me in a lose-lose situation. Right? I don't enjoy any profit if I'm successful, and I only get punishment if I'm a failure. Right? And so he looks at the master and he says, you're unfair. You're unfair. You put me in an unfair position. Perhaps maybe he even had in mind the fact that he was given less than the other two servants. Right? It's not fair. Why did you give so-and-so five talents, and you gave that guy over there two talents? You only gave me one talent. You're not fair, master. You're not fair. When we think about uh, his response to this, he ends up responding basically in fear and sloth and dislike of the master. And, we, and particularly when we think about sloth, you know, that's not just laziness for the sake of laziness. It's laziness that's born out of despair. It says, it looks at the world and says, what's the point, right? No matter what I do, it's not going to work out well, so there's no point in trying, right? And so that's his attitude. He's, he has this, this attitude of, of begrudging his master and of... of uh, 
of feeling like his master is unfair and has put him in this really awful position. And it's really easy to maybe jump into judgment of the servant here. But I confess there's many times where I'm tempted to think the same thing of the Lord, where I'm tempted to call God unfair, right? And I say, Christ, why? Why did you put me in this circumstance? That's not fair. I don't feel like that, that um, I can really be a success here or that this is too hard for me. Or why did you give so-and-so these, these gifts and you have not given those gifts to me? You're unfair, right? Or you, just, you expect too much of me, God. You ask too much of me. You forget that I'm just a man. And, you, and, and I wanna, I'm tempted to go along with this bad servant and wanting to accuse Christ of being unfair. When we stop and we think about this for a minute, we see that this kind of an attitude reveals two things. There's two things that this bad attitude reveals to us about the servant and possibly about ourselves. The first is that this slave doesn't really know his master. Doesn't really know his master. You know, if this master is supposed to represent Christ, and we start thinking about all these things that this slave is accusing the master of, do those accusations really hold when we think, about Christ properly? Does Christ take what is not rightfully his? Is he not creator? Is he not the Lord and the sovereign God over the whole universe? Did he not come and lay down his life on the cross in order to purchase the world through his blood for himself? Is there anything that he can demand of us that he has no right to? Right? He's not another man. He is not, he's not a greedy, uh, wealthy robber baron. Right? He is the Lord of the universe. Does he take what is not rightfully his? Does he really put us in lose-lose scenarios? When we seem to be put in situations that are more than we can handle, that's often done very intentionally out of love in the gospel. Because what Christ wants us to do when we find ourselves in scenarios where the, the, the challenge goes beyond our means is to learn to depend on him. Right? It's not that Christ does not put us in sometimes over our head, but every time he puts us in those situations, he will supernaturally supply what we lack because he wants us to see that he is our life, that he is the source of all that we need. And so he doesn't put us into tough situations in order to set us up for failure. He puts us in situations that will cause us to go more deeply, uh, run more deeply into him and depend on him even more radically so that we might enjoy relationship with him even more. Right? Does he really have the right to give as he sees fit? You know, um, God doesn't give everyone the same amount of everything, right? God, when we look at the kingdom, it's not a communist utopia. We don't have the exact same gifts, the exact same abilities, the exact same amount of wealth. But does not God have the right to give as he sees fit? Um, I'm reminded earlier in Scripture when Moses was talking to the Lord and, and he was telling him to go and to speak before Pharaoh, and he said, well, basically I can't. I'm not a good public speaker. And God responds, who made man's mouth, right? In other words, I know, Moses, I designed you not to be a good public speaker, right? Whatever the case happens to be in our life, whether you feel like you have a lot of gifts from the Lord or few gifts from the Lord, he has the right to give as he sees fit. And we should not feel that that is somehow unjust, that God is unfair if he gave, you know, some of you the ability to fix things and he left that one off for me, right? And I, and I can't do jack around my house, right? There's no reason for me to feel bitter about that because it's the Lord's world. It's his gifts. It's grace. And he has the right to give it as he sees. Okay? And in all of these things, whenever we're tempted to think of Christ as being unfair, we should look at the cross and ask, was that fair? Right? That Christ, who deserves rightfully everything, um, who deserved the world because he created it, because he is the Lord of it, 
nonetheless took upon himself the penalty of our sin and died in our place that we might be able to have benefit with him. There's nothing about that that was fair. That I should receive the righteousness of God in, in response to my sin and my rebellion. And so whenever I'm tempted to, to try to accuse God of being unfair, I need to stop and think about who Christ is and what he's done for me. And, and when I know my master, when I start focusing on Christ instead of myself, I stop really feeling like it's really all that unfair, right? And so the first thing that this bad servant's attitude reveals is that he doesn't know his master. The second thing that he reveals in his attitude is that he's forgotten he's a servant, right? That he's forgotten he's a servant, that he thinks that he's entitled to his master's profit, that somehow by, given, by being given this talent, that was something that actually belonged to him to use as he sees fit, and if he can't enjoy it on his terms, then he's not going to invest it for the sake of his master. And aren't we tempted to do that as well? Aren't we tempted to think that our gifts exist for our own benefit, right? That God gives me wealth that I might spend it on myself to be comfortable, that he gives me the talents and abilities that I might uh, advance my glory, my fame, my agenda, rather than thinking of these things as belonging to the Lord. And so this servant not only had forgotten who his master was, he had forgotten that he was a servant, right? And so that explains then what happens to this servant, why the master judges him the way that he does. Let's pick up there. This is in verse 26. His master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, and the place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's think about the master's response here for a moment. And the first thing I want to acknowledge is that there's a bit of an interpretive problem that comes up here that, um, that there's a lot of different views and commentaries about because the master here is, is at first seeming to agree with the slave's assessment uh, and, and saying, well, you know, that uh, you, you say these things about me that I, I reap where I don't sow and so forth. And if we think about the master as representing Christ, that creates a problem because these accusations can't really hold if Christ is the master, right? Uh, particularly, too, when the master was saying, you know, well, if, then you should have gone and invested this stuff in the bank with interest. That would be telling, basically, the slave to go out and engage in money lending, which more or less uh, violated the Old Testament law about usury. So this can't really be an accurate representation of the master's character. And so there's different ways that various people have tried to interpret this passage. My... My interpretation of this, and, and I'm willing to be challenged on that, but what I think is, given the rest of what this passage is saying, that the master is not really agreeing with the accusation that the slave has given here. He's not really saying that that is a true reflection of his character and nature. I think that what he's doing is that he's actually exposing the slave's hypocrisy. He's showing that if the slave really believed what he said that he believed, that his behavior is, is still unacceptable even on his own uh, evaluation. So the point of this is not to get caught up in thinking that somehow Jesus actually is a hard, cruel master who takes what doesn't really belong to him. The point is that he's saying, if you really believe that to be true about me, you would still have acted differently. And so he's, he's showing his hypocrisy, right? And so the way that that works is he's saying, look, if you really thought that I was this cruel, hard judge, 
if you really feared me, if you really, you know, this is kind of a, a negative view of God that sometimes people have in our culture that he's sort of following us around with a hammer, ready, ready to smack us if we get out of line. It's like if you really had that view of me, then you would have been motivated to respond by at least taking my money and, and, and again here, breaking the Old Testament law and putting it out at interest. You wouldn't even have to have worked. You could have been lazy, you know, if you're lending it out uh, to various folks and you're just wanting to get, um, you know, the, the wealth from that interest. You wouldn't even have to have worked in this scenario. You could have been lazy and you could have, uh, and if, you, if I was really so cruel and so harsh and if you really believe that to be true, then that's what you would have done. And that would have more... Uh, accurately satisfy what you're you're saying about me. And so the fact that the slave did not do that, the fact that the slave had just hidden his talent, shows that even though he believes the master to be unfair, that on some level he doesn't really believe in the master that much at all. That he wasn't really all that afraid of, of his master's judgment because he didn't really do anything with what he had been given. And that's going to be the case for many that uh, that are going to be judged, right? Um, that those who have not uh, come under the, the umbrella of the gospel and accepted Christ are going to be judged by God when, when they have done nothing with the things he's given them and they've spent their whole life uh, just trying to pad their own kingdom and they've ignored him. You know, and when Christ shows up, and they, there's not going to be a response there. There's not going to be an excuse to say that God wasn't fair. Um, he's going to expose our hypocrisy and our unbelief and our rebellion. And, and from that, he will very rightfully judge us uh, if we have refused to, to repent and believe. And so that's what the, the consequence is for this slave, that he's cast out from his master. His, his talent is taken from him, uh, and he is, the relationship has been severed. And that is the very essence of what hell is all about. It's being severed from relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is the greatest good that our hearts need and desire, then not getting Jesus is the worst evil that can befall us, right? And so that's what this, I think this text is saying, that, that, uh, that this bad servant never really had a very big, good relationship with the master at all. This is not a Christian who has somehow lost salvation for not uh, being good enough. This is somebody who was never in relationship with the master in the first place. And so what can we learn as we look through these texts here? Uh, what can we apply for us today? And I think that the most important point of application, and I, and I said it at the very beginning of the sermon, is that all of us have a call to ministry. Um, that if there's nothing else we get from this text, we have to understand that being a disciple of Christ, loving Christ, knowing Christ, means that that's going to work itself out in us doing activity, doing work for the sake of gospel ministry. That that's not something that just happens with a spiritual few, that there's not just this elite group that somehow does ministry and the rest of us just go about our, our everyday lives. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about this church is the fact that all of our elders are bivocational. You know, none of, none of the elders, uh, you know, just do this full time. They all have other jobs because that puts us in the same boat as everyone else, right? That all of us are called to do what we can with what we've been given for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of ministry. And this does not mean that somehow our activity earns salvation or earns God's favor in any means, but it does show that we are living faithfully to Christ because we know him. So maybe we could take a quick inventory of the things that God has given us and begin to ask ourselves the question, how do I serve God? What do I do with these various things? How do I serve God with my money and my possessions? Am I using my wealth and my resources, my home, in order to advance the gospel? You know, do I give to the church? Am I willing to be hospitable with my stuff? Or 
Am I only using those things for myself? Am I only interested in trying to amass more wealth for myself? What about my time? You know, some of us, uh, you may not feel like you have a whole lot of money. That's fine. What about your time? You know, is your time something that you're serving the Lord with? Are you sacrificially looking for opportunities to invest in ministry? Or do we look at our time as being our own and we selfishly guard it and give as little as possible to the Lord and to what he has for us? What about our family? This is a very key area of ministry, right, that, that we have to, to proclaim the Lord uh, to one another and to worship together as a family. You know, um, particularly as, as husbands and fathers, we have a responsibility uh, to be priests in our family and to call our family into worship. You know, are we using our family to advance the gospel and advance the kingdom? Or do we look at our family as existing to serve us and to bless us? And, and I'm going to kick back and, you know, make Rachel make me sandwiches or whatever, right? Um, you know, am I, am I looking to serve the Lord through my family and, and, and encouraging my family to engage in ministry? Or my job? You know, what about my job? You know, every single job that every one of us has is this potential area of ministry. Um, I know that usually when we talk about missions in the context of our church, we're talking about going to an unreached people group where the gospel has not been proclaimed. But not to, not to take away from that definition, but, you know, every job is a kind of mission field. And, you know, God needs uh, folks who are going to be accountants to go into the field of accounting to save other accountants, right? Or, you know, folks that are uh, firefighters to go and save other firefighters. And so am I using my job in a way that I'm extending God's gospel kingdom uh, in my sphere of influence at work? And if I have a skill set that can be used in a missions context of going to the nations, am I doing that? Right. Uh, sometimes that's not always easy. Um, I was talking last night to, to Jennifer about how, uh, you know, as a teacher, um, sometimes I feel like I don't really have a lot of skills to offer in a foreign missions context, a Christian school teacher. Um, whereas some of you who maybe are, um, you know, carpenters or, or, or have gifting with medicine or whatever, you might have opportunities to go into countries that, that I might not have the opportunity to go into. Um, of course, I was really excited to find out there was a school in our in our uh, favorite country, and so maybe down the road I'll have an opportunity to go and do Christian teaching, uh, and that might work out. But, you know, do I have a skill set that can be used to advance the gospel in a foreign field or here at home? What about spiritual gifts, natural abilities, right? Um, what has the Lord equipped you to do? What are you good at? What can you not stop yourself from doing? Um, this is one of the reasons why um, I know that, uh, that I enjoy teaching is because I can't stop myself from teaching. Like, it doesn't matter. I, I may never stand up in front of you guys again, but I would, I would not stop teaching. Uh, my poor wife is very long-suffering with this because the first thing that I do when I learn something is I turn around and I try to tell it to her. Um, I just I can't stop it uh, from myself. It's just how I'm wired. That's my wheelhouse. And, and so God has given all of us those things. What are those things that make you excited? What are those things that that you can't stop yourself from doing? Are you using those things in a way that advances the kingdom, that advances the gospel? And how do we plug all that together uh, in the church, in the life of the church? What are the opportunities here together that we have for ministry? And so as we look at all the things that God has given us, all the different talents, all the different spheres of influence, our question should be as if I'm a faithful disciple of Christ, if I'm someone who's been transformed by the gospel, then there should be a rich, joy saturated fuel desire to take what i have and plug it into ministry in some fashion on the other hand there's a gut check here that if all we do is show up and consume if all we do is show up every week and and we don't seek to be a blessing we don't seek to use our gifts we don't seek 
to, to engage in the life of the church or to, to take the things we've been given and advance the kingdom, that might be evidence that we're not really in relationship with the master. Because the text is pretty clear. There's, there's not a neutral ground. We're either going to care about our master and want to advance his kingdom and advance his interests or not. And so as we're talking through about uh, leadership, as we're talking through about being elders in the church or other leadership positions in the church, I want to remind us that all of us have a role to play and that the role that, that you have to play is just as important as anyone else's. And there's nothing, there's nothing about uh, you know, standing up and, and, and preaching on a Sunday morning that is any more uh, important in the life of ministry in the church than all the other gifts and talents the Lord has given you. And I want to just encourage you to think through what has he given you. And in that context, you know, ask, how can I plug that into the church? And it's only in that context that that question makes sense. So let's, uh, let's pray and then respond as, as you need in, uh, in worship and obedience. Father, um, I just confess before you, when I start thinking about my own life and I think about the many ways in which you have just richly blessed me with abundance that is above and beyond what I can ask or imagine, that I far too often take your gifts and, uh, and I use them on myself and I don't seek to think through how I can advance your kingdom with them. And so I I ask for forgiveness, Father. I ask, Father, that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, that as we look at your word, as we respond and worship, that we would see Christ as being so worthy of everything that we have to give, that we would take joy in being able to serve you, take joy in laying our lives down before you, that you've given us everything and that we would withhold nothing from you. And that only comes about uh, through the Spirit Uh, showing us um, Jesus. And so would you do that? Would you do the work that you said you would in your word? And I pray, Father, that you would, from your spirit, empower this church, this body, to do ministry in many different contexts, that everyone would be sold out, uh, invested wholeheartedly in trying to advance the gospel, whatever our sphere of influence is, and that you would use this body, uh, both here in Rome and among the nations, that we would be used to to make your name great and to be worshipped. So just please move, Father, uh, through your people and, and uh, move people as, as you see fit. Um, and we just ask this and we trust you will we'll do so. In Christ's name. Amen.